millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Jim, we hear so much, and, and we've talked so much, about how technology can threaten our society, our politics, even our mental health. But today, we're going to look at the flip side, the upside of technology. And speaking of the upside for us, we are now on Patreon, and we're asking people to help our cause by joining our community and maybe giving as little as a dollar a month to How Do We Fix It? But don't lowball it now, Richard. <laughs> you know, $5 a month would be great. It would be excellent. And you go to patreon.com and just search How Do We Fix It? The problems that we face as a society are not going to be solved by tech alone. Um, most of the problem-solving work that we see and support at Civic Hall, I'd say at most 20% is tech. And 80% is social. It's about how you learn to organize people. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? There's a theme we keep coming back to on how do we fix it. The built-in problems with social media and digital communication. Facebook, Google, Twitter, are they spying on us? Are they secretly pushing us toward extreme views? Are they making everyone less happy and more partisan? All real problems, but they don't tell the whole story of how tech is shaping our society. Today we're going to talk about an organization called Civic Hall. It's a key player in the growing movement to use technology for good, what people are calling civic tech. And before we do our interview, here's an extract of a video they've produced about some of the people who are involved with Civic Hall. So the idea for Civic Hall came as an outgrowth of something known as the Personal Democracy Forum, which started in 2004. It was a conference to study and understand the intersection of technology, politics, and government. From the very beginning, we saw the special spark that was possible here. To do something that can move the needle, that can really demonstrate improvements in people's lives. People all the time that I know or that I have relationships with, it's great to kind of see them on a more regular basis. I was fascinated and excited and inspired and became a member just as soon as I realized you could become a member. As soon as we heard that there was an opportunity to join a community center dedicated to civic technology. Everyone here is striving to accomplish something that most other people would think impossible. Basically, like, how do we save the world or help the world? Somewhere out there, there's a perfect match between two civic hall 
members. Our guest is Mika Sifri. Mika is the co-founder and president of Civic Hall, a longtime advocate for transparency, better government, and using technology for social change. Mika is also the author of a whole bunch of books, most recently, Civic Tech in the Global South. He writes occasionally for The Nation, where he used to be a, a full-time writer and editor. And full disclosure, he's also an old friend of mine. He joins us in the How Do We Fix It studio north. You know, usually we record the show from Richard's yeah, apartment. About 15, 20 miles south of here in Manhattan. And here we are up the Hudson River. Right. In fact, we're looking at the sunset over the Hudson as we speak. And uh, Mika joins us because this is where I live and close to where he lives. So, Mika, welcome to How Do We Fix It. It's great to be here. So, let's start at the top. What is civic tech? We define civic tech as the use of technology for the public good. We've just seen this flowering of public-spirited entrepreneurs and technologists deciding that they want to use their tech skills to somehow benefit society. What's an example of civic tech that our listeners may have heard about? Sure. I would say maybe the best example is a service called Crisis Text Line, um, which, is, uh, which was started by a woman named Nancy Lublin. And they were connecting with a lot of teenagers through texting. That happens to be the best channel uh, for, for reaching and communicating with, with teens. And one day, uh, she describes getting a really traumatic, upsetting message from a girl who uh, described uh, that she was being abused by her father and a light bulb went off for Nancy. There was something about the text channel that this girl trusted. It was an intimate form of communication, and, and she trusted it enough to share a very deep and, and scary secret. And out of that insight came the idea of building crisis response through uh, texting. Um, what, but what Crisis Text Line does that is way beyond what the, the traditional 800 number of services that people use, were using previously, a couple of things. It's open 24-7. They have hundreds of volunteers from anywhere who can respond. And the critical thing is they understand the power of data. So they know, uh, based on the words that, that kids use in the text, they, they analyze the stuff that's coming in, and they can very quickly prioritize what's you know, like suicidal ideation, what's less of a crisis. Um, and they now have all kinds of predictive data, which they are sharing back with the community. And, uh, and do a lot of teenagers know that it's oh my out God, there? Millions, millions. And cities are now using, are replacing their existing 800 number services with crisis text line instead. Um, but they can tell a locality what day of the week is the most likely day where, where you're going to have reports of, of uh, like bulimia, for example, or uh, higher reports of depressive disorders based on the data that they're collecting? And how are, the, how are these texts analyzed? Are some of them analyzed through artificial intelligence? AI, absolutely. It goes through AI filters, and then it, it's obviously there's lots of stuff that humans have to do. So there's a lot happening in this space. What does your organization, Civic Hall, bring to it? So we started Civic Hall four years ago, um, built on a simple uh, hunch, which was that the, the, there was a latent community of people in New York, where we're based, um, who were 
looking for uh, a greater level of mutual support around the fact that they are trying to use tech for the public good. They are attacking a wide range of societal problems. But that giving them more of a daily workspace and, and collaborative community hub was something that they were really hungry for. And, and let me just jump in on that. This isn't just an online organization. Quite no. the opposite. It's an actual physical place, like a shared workspace. You can have meetings, exactly. conferences. What differentiates Civical from co-working is the idea of shared values and collaboration. Um, the only requirement for membership in the space is you have to demonstrate when you apply to, to join what the thing you're working on, how it contributes to the public good. This really reminds us of, of ReCity, which is an organization mm -hmm. that is similar with a co-working space that, that I visited in Durham, North Carolina. Mm. Yeah, and I, by the way, there are places like Civic Hall in other parts of the country. There's, there's uh, one in Toronto that's literally called Civic Hall Toronto, modeled on us. Um, and I do think what, uh, when people ask, you know, what's it most like, I would say this is maybe what libraries should become, right? Like if you look at the typical public library today, uh, it's less and less about giving people books, and it's more and more about supporting people with services and with information that they will use to better their own lives. So give us an example of how civic tech works. Well, the, 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 the truth is that it has gone through a couple of phases. Right. The very first phase was uh, individual, usually very skilled techies, um, who had an idea that they wanted to somehow hack the system to make something work better. And the, the, the er example of this is a guy named Carl Malamud, um, who uh, was the chief technologist for a think tank in Washington, D.C. back in the 90s. He got himself a two-year grant to basically get uh, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission to FedEx him the disks with all of the uh, public filings that publicly traded companies have to file regularly. And he then had these things FedEx to him in California overnight, five days a week, and would digitize them and put them up on the web for free. So that in the past, it used to be this was information that was valuable if you were a big investor and you had, you had to pay a lot of money to get your hands on it. And he made that information free. And suddenly this whole ecosystem of smaller investors, mom and pops, uh, clubs and so on, people started getting their hands on public data that was now, because of the Internet, freely available. He did this for two years. And then when his grant ended, this is where he hacked the system. He posted an announcement on his website saying, unfortunately, I'm going to have to take this service down because my money is running out. However, here's uh, the White House switchboard's phone number, and here is the phone number for the head of uh, the SEC. Call them and tell them that you would like this to be a public service. And they were flooded with phone calls, and that is how the SEC came to take over EDGAR, which is a primary public database for people getting access to core information about stocks. So that first phase, was it about opening up systems and making things that had been private or only accessed by wealthy individuals public? That was the, the, the first impulse was techies who thought, I think I know how to solve a problem better 
than the way existing institutions are solving them. They didn't ask for permission. They didn't ask users whether this is something they wanted. They just went out and did it. But it, it, it's also been people just deciding, uh, the web makes it easy for me to do something. Why don't I just do it? So another er example of civic tech arises roughly 2007, 2008. There is a disputed election in Kenya. And the government, which is trying to keep this, the country from breaking apart over the results of this election, clamps down on all news about election-related disturbances and whether polling sites are being uh, inappropriately accessed. And a blogger named Ori Okolo starts collecting this information on her blog from all, all of her readers. People are just sending her news about what's going on locally. And she decides... I'm going to just make my blog a hub for information about what's going on. But then one day she says, gee, wouldn't it be great if we could put these reports onto a Google map so people could discover where the problems are, where what's going on near them? Two of her readers back in the United States see this and write her and they say, you know what? We know how to use Google Maps. We can build that tool for you. And not only can we build it, but we can build it in a way that anybody else could use it. Thus was born a platform called Ushahidi, which just means witness in Swahili. And Ushahidi was first used as an election monitoring site, but it has now been used in thousands and thousands of cases around the world for anybody in a society where they're facing a crisis, whether it's a, a disaster like a tsunami or an earthquake or whatever, or forest fires that happened in Russia, or it's more of a political crisis. I, like I think somebody election. just used it to map reports of feces on the streets of San Francisco. Absolutely, perfectly <laughs> yeah. reasonable use of that. And the, the point of this, though, is that the tool, first of all, becomes a platform. It's not a single use, right? And the second thing is, is that it's open, openly extensible. Other people can make of it what they will. And Ushahidi makes a living partly from giving away a free version and you know, selling more uh, advanced uses, helping people customize it. So those are the first two phases. Now where are we? So I think where we are now, and I, this is especially in the last few years, is a reevaluation of whether it's good enough for civic-minded techies to make solutions for other people or for society at large, or whether it's more appropriate to build with, not for. That is a key, That those four words, build with, not for, are kind of a key precept in present-day civic tech. And very often the people who have the tech skills actually don't necessarily know the real needs of the communities that, they, that they're trying to help. You know, there's a tech backlash going on, right? And some of that is Very because so. of the solutionism, of the, this idea that we know what's best and we're going to remake the world and, and without real sensitivity to people who are different than the makers of the technology. You're getting me fired up. I'm kind of excited <laughs> about this. So, so let's have another example sure. um, that, that may be helpful to illustrate what you're talking about. Code for America, food stamp project. Yes. The, the Keystone project they're doing now in California, the one you're referring to around food stamps, uh, the, the core idea is uh, to re-architect how 
a person applies for and gets uh, accepted into the California food stamp program. So, so make it a lot easier. Make it easier, make it faster, make it less onerous. I don't think there's any state in the United States where 100% of the people who qualify for food stamps are actually getting the benefit. And very often, the reason why they're not is because it's just a pain in the ass to apply. In New York, I think it, it, one person estimated to get on SNAP, which is the program, uh, that the process could take up to eight hours, and it included uh, the need to fax documents in. Well, how many of us still even have a fax machine or know where to get something faxed? And so along comes an organization like Code for America, and it has demonstrated now with the food stamp program in California, and there's another one that's equally important, which is now that the laws are being liberalized related to drug offenses, particularly marijuana possession, there are tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands in California alone, who are walking around uh, with criminal records that, that they, by rights, no longer need to have on their record. It's called expungement. And right now, the, the onus is on you, the individual, to apply to have your record expunged, when in fact, now it should really be on the state to automatically expunge those records. And I, Code I, for I, America is doing that. Uh, they piloted in, in a few counties, and now it's spreading all over I California. I just, just want to clarify that expunge means... Remove, right. so that it's no longer on your record. So let's talk about some projects that Civic Hall has been involved in specifically. And there's one that I read about that sounded really exciting involving New York City veterans. Sure. One of our earliest members was a young woman named Kristen Rouse, um, who had served three terms in Afghanistan um, and had come back um, with this idea that as a New Yorker, a younger veteran... Uh, the older veterans organizations didn't speak to her, the VFWs and so on. It's important to note that veterans from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the army is more diverse now than it was, say, you know, in the Vietnam years. And so the older groups didn't necessarily feel as as much uh, uh, home to her. Mm -hmm. So she had this idea, 200,000 younger veterans living in New York City, and there's no organization that speaks and lobbies on their behalf. So she had the concept for the New York City Veterans Alliance when she came and joined at Civic Hall. But what she had no idea was, how the heck do I organize people? What, what, how can the internet help me? What tools should I use? And she fairly quickly made friends and, and began to present these kinds of questions to peers. So, for example, somebody said, oh, you're, you're trying to build a membership organization? The best tool for that is called Nation Builder. Uh, it's cheap. And it's precisely what you need. It'll help you build a membership uh, dues system. It'll build a calendar of events for you. And next thing you know, she's up on Nation Builder. And she's got about 400 dues-paying members. And then she has another issue, which is she wants to lobby the city council to get the city to pass a law creating a new Department of Veterans Services in New York, which we don't have, or at least back then we didn't. And she realizes she has to do leadership development. She has to train her most active members in how to effectively lobby. We have another member in the, in, in, at Civic Hall, a young woman named Erin Velarde, who had started her own nonprofit uh, called Vote Run Lead, which uh, recruits and trains women to run for office. And Erin says, I do leadership development all the time. How about if we pair up 
and I'll I'll do my training for your people. And next thing you know, that that goes off swimmingly. And I, I think it's really important for people who may be listening to recognize something that um, the problems that we face as, as a society are not going to be solved by tech alone. Um, most of the problem solving work that we see and support at Civic Hall, I'd say at most 20 percent is tech and 80 percent is social. It's about how you learn to organize people. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Usually, we pivot during these interviews and say, well, okay, you've described the problem. What about the solution? But it's all solutions. But, but in this case, it's, it's all solutions. It's great to hear, hear them. Uh, great to hear how Thank practical you. they are. Can we talk about something with, with the 2020 election season approaching, sure. which is how can tech be used to improve turnout? Okay, so I, that's a great question. I'm glad you're asking it. And, and I, I, I can answer with like two specific examples. The first one is to just let me rave a little bit about one of my favorite civic tech organizations, um, which is called Democracy Works. People may have heard of it from their original product, which was called TurboVote. And this was basically a bunch of very bright students at Harvard's Kennedy School. Uh, They looked at Netflix, which back then, you know, if you wanted to get a, a, a video, you know, Two days later, it would come to you, you know, in as the, a DVD. In the, a little, yeah. the famous red envelope. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then when you're done with it, you would just ship it back. And they, their idea with TurboVote was it should be as easy to get your absentee ballot or your, or your registration changed as it is to get a DVD delivered to you. And initially, they, they modeled their service around that. They have grown now to become the organization. When you search for information online, Google or Facebook... Where's my polling place? When is it open? Who's on the ballot? Uh, How do I register to vote? How do I uh, change my registration or get an absentee ballot? The actual data is all administered by Democracy Works. It's it's called the Civic Information API. Um, Google and Facebook give them a little bit of money to store and update this information, but literally there will be hundreds of millions of searches in the weeks before elections. And all of that is because this scrappy little nonprofit called Democracy Works is making that information available. So, okay, that's a great example of how it might be easier for people to register. But how do we boost turnout in this country, which is so much lower than it is in most other democracies? 
Um, I would say one way we boosted is we have a very controversial president um, because that's obviously increased interest in the 2020 election. It's, you know, compared to the last three or four cycles, all the data suggests that this is going to be a much higher turnout election than in past years, uh, whether you like him or hate him. Um, so two young women at Civic Hall who started an app called Motivote. So, so that's instead of motivate, it's motivote. Motivote, exactly. And so they've done a lot of research into the problem of uh, low turnout among young people. And so their solution is to build teams. The one core insight about changing behavior is that if you're doing a behavior by yourself, you're less likely to keep doing it than if you're doing it with a group of peers. I mean, think of it like around exercise or dieting. Um, the reason why, say, Fitbit works so well, it isn't just that you, you're tracking your own steps, but you may be sharing that information with a couple of friends or family members or coworkers, and now you're all kind of, you know, encouraging each other or maybe negatively feel, you know, like I got to keep up with so-and-so because he's walking more than me. So what Motivote has been doing is building these peer groups um, and then doing a lot of very uh, important testing of like what kinds of prompts, what kinds of, you know, little text messages or, you know, they're trying to gamify it a little bit. How do you reward people for making a commitment and then sticking to it? Uh, but I think we're seeing a lot of these kinds of data-driven approaches, fresh ideas to attacking a, a long-lasting problem. So at the top of the show, you mentioned this tech backlash that's going on around Google, Facebook, Twitter. And not long ago, you wrote, in our digital age, coders are our unacknowledged legislators. And you wrote that one coder, in particular Mark Zuckerberg, is the unacknowledged president of the largest nation on earth, which I call Facebookistan. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, well... Um Zuckerberg is a very unusual case because Facebook, uh, you know, now has, what, 2.4 billion users? It keeps going up. Uh, I think that is the largest single social entity. You know, it dwarfs the size of the Catholic Church. It dwarfs the size of, you know, the, the global Muslim population. Mm. Um, there is no, you know, China, what, 1.2 billion people. So, when Facebook makes a change, which is to say when Mark Zuckerberg decides to make a change, since he has the majority of the voting stock, um, he is de facto the president over the rest of us. If he decides, as he did, to experiment with how uh, news will be shown to you through newsfeed, and they did this in a couple of smaller countries uh, where they were playing around with, well, maybe we'll... We'll take news out of news feed and we'll put it in a separate section over here. And all the news organizations in these, these countries suddenly suffer a huge crash in traffic, like to the point where they're wondering if they're going to be able to survive. That's power. And it's completely unelected power. Can we fight big tech with civic tech? Well, I think that to a certain degree, we use civic tech as as. To, as an attempt to get the rest of tech to reorient it itself, that that we would we are trying to change the value orientation of of tech and the decision makers in tech to get them to be more civic. Um, what we're trying to get, what we desperately need, 
is tech that at, at its core is designed for civic purposes first. Um, and we, you know, this has all come at us really fast. Um, you know, the, the pace of technological change, the degree to which our behavior has, has been transformed. And I think we're now, as a society, trying to catch up. Um, and so civic tech is part of that effort uh, to try and rebalance things. Micha Sifri, thank you very much for being on How Do We Fix It? It's been my pleasure. We always do a wrap-up after our guest, Richard. And here's one that doesn't really need much of a wrap-up because, in a way, the work that Mika Sifri is doing with his organization is kind of the classic how-do-we-fix-it project. It, it really does. And yeah. I'm really excited by this because I didn't know very much of what he was going to talk about. And uh, there are so many interesting groups that that Civic Hall is involved with in trying to fix it. Yeah, it's neat. And they're, you know, they do a lot of their own projects, but they really see themselves as kind of a clearinghouse or a connection node for all these other groups that are that are working in this space. And what's nice is it doesn't really come from a, a, an ideological partisan place. Most of their projects do lean more left but they're tools that could be used by all sorts of groups. And I think that's what's important. Making things that need to work in our society work better is something that I think, you know, we should be able to celebrate regardless of who came up with it or which party might be might be using it. And, and using technology to do that. Right, right. But also, I think the big lesson for me is his point that 80% of these projects is not the technology, it's the social element. It's people meeting together, talking, coming up with ideas, figuring out how to manage it. It's not just one brilliant tech fix. So once again, the role of technology is, is crucial, but sometimes it can be overestimated. It's not like human ingenuity is going to be replaced by tech. That's right. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for nonprofits as well as for uh, companies. And uh, you can check us out at DaviesContent.com. We'd like to help you. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. 
This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.